Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In our typical Trending News U.S. episodes, we discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. For today's episode, we are going to focus on the Supreme Court's recent ruling on Dobbs versus Jackson, a case centered on a Mississippi law that bars most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, a standard that directly challenged Roe versus Wade. On Friday, June 24th, in one of the most consequential decisions in decades, the court ruled in favor of overturning Roe holding there is no longer a federal constitutional right to an abortion. I'm here with Dynamics' Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to talk about the implications of this decision on women's reproductive health and the American healthcare industry at large. Mindy, what are your initial impressions of this historic ruling? Jen, I think historic is probably the right word to describe this. I mean, this, this ruling on Friday was a landmark decision that really probably serves to upend the healthcare system as we know it when it comes to women's reproductive rights. There will be long-standing consequences as a result of this decision because Roe has been a part of the fabric of the healthcare system for close to five decades. And so when I think about this from a public policy perspective, think about some of the things that that we have heard since the draft decision was leaked earlier this year. And that is, we knew that there were certain things that would would be probably coming with this decision. Probably most immediate, right, is what we are calling the trigger laws. So there are almost half of the states in this country that have some sort of laws in place that would immediately go into effect to ban abortion, either as soon as that, that decision was rendered or within a couple of months of that decision. You add to that the fact that there are also what we call zombie laws in place. And these are laws may have been passed a decade or two decades ago, but never enacted because Roe essentially prohibited that. So what we're going to see, I think, over the next couple of months are that a lot of laws that have either been on the books or immediately get triggered because there no longer is a national mandate on abortion privileges, will go into effect. And that's going to cause, I think, a lot of confusion. Uh, The Biden administration has made it very clear through the attorney general's office that women must remain free to travel safely from state to state in order to seek the care they need. So that means that we may see what we call, I I hate to use the term medical tourism because I don't think tourism is, is appropriate. But I think what we are going to see is that in the states where abortion still is legal and still there's access to abortion that we will see that women have to have the opportunity to be able to travel safely in order to seek access to the care that they need. The president also was pretty clear as soon as the the ruling was read in directing the Secretary of Health and Human Services to protect women's access to critical medications for reproductive health care that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration including some of these essential preventative health care items like contraception and medication abortion, over which 50% of abortions are done through medication abortion. Uh, so I think those are, are some immediate things that the administration is trying to do to react 
to a certain degree to what happened with the Supreme Court ruling uh, last week. In addition to that, the Attorney General has called on Congress to pass a federal law that protects the right to an abortion. We already saw this action take place earlier this year, and it did not pass the Senate in a 51 to 49 vote. So I think that while there is pressure and there will be pressure on Congress to try to codify, again, a federal law that protects the right to an abortion, I'm not sure how readily or easily we're going to see that happen. In addition to that, I think there are some states that we will see probably prohibit the dispensing of those medications that I talked about to help with self-abortion. So I would sum up my initial impressions from a policy standpoint by saying that I think that this is going to be a very confusing time, both for providers of women's health, as well as for women themselves, as they try to navigate through the the many different changes that are occurring at a state level, even at a county level, along with the emotional aspect of this. When I think about it from a provider standpoint, I just think about the fact that there are ethical, legal, and administrative questions that providers are really going to have to contend with starting immediately, which the provider system in this country has been under a lot of duress over the last two years. And now this has been added to the mix. And I think that it's going to be a really difficult time for providers to figure out where they stand or where they, what they're able to actually do when it comes to providing the right access to care for women that need it. There's also been some chatter recently around the chilling effect this has already had on providers, even in states where they might have a few months, they've already started to grind things to a halt because it's unclear in this limbo period. Are they are they legally liable? Are they not? Especially with the precedent of bounty hunting established by the recent Texas legislation. I think everyone's legal departments are very gun shy when it comes to what is permissible in the post-Roe era. You know, I've been following different states and, and, and the largest health system, University of Michigan hospital system, is continuing to provide abortion care. But then there's a system that just said they're pulling back on, on abortion care. So as Mindy mentioned, the confusion from a kind of citizenship perspective and, and an individual perspective, these health systems are similarly confused on, on what to do. I mean, I think it's, it's just a little bit chaotic. Time will tell, but I don't think that that confusion and chaos is going to change because, for instance, in Michigan, abortion is still legal right now. The law that would ban it statewide, I think, is temporarily suspended while there's an injunction. So these things happen and new things and new new injunctions happen on the daily. And it's very confusing to systems themselves, which then puts stress and concern on primary care physicians and on the, the field of obstetrics. So goodness, it's confusing. It's going to continue to be confusing. And then come election time, it probably will just add another layer of, of concern and confusion again. Yeah, I think the role of these upcoming midterm elections really can't be understated both at the federal level and the state level. I think before this decision came out, Kaiser had done a poll and had shown that 40% of Americans had said that they would be more likely to vote in the midterms depending on the outcome of Dobbs that we've seen that has just overturned Roe. And it will be 
something else to see now how voters in states where things are much more likely without Roe to be in a prohibitive stance for abortion. Does that change some of the voting activity, the thinking activity now that it's a reality, now that that safeguard of Roe is gone? You know, does that does that really move the needle in sort of people's reported attitudes versus actual behaviors and voting patterns? And beyond just, you know, the ability for potentially a federal codification or at the individual state level, there's going to be so much to figure out because within this decision, there really wasn't a lot of guidance given to the states or recommendations for how far these rules should really go now that we've removed that almost that viability component, right? And we saw even in this Mississippi case and in Alito's opinion, this like strong juxtaposition between state beliefs and the medical definition of where where does pregnancy start? Is it conception, fertilization? Is it implantation? And this lack of guidance really has ripple effects when you think about contraception and some of the methodologies around plan B or IUDs around in vitro fertilization and the ability to look at multiple embryos at a time for viability. And I think most challenging too is that there's really no line on this concept of safety for the mother. It's going to be left to individual states, individual medical institutions, provider networks to really make that decision real time. So there's just a lot of ambiguity and things being left in the hands of the states to decide that are really medical conversations and medical considerations that they might not have that appropriate healthcare knowledge or bring in the right experts to be able to make truly informed policy decisions. Jen, you bring up the safety of the mother. And we've talked on this podcast before about maternal mortality in the U.S., right? And and the fact that in the U.S., in comparison to almost every other industrialized nation, it's way higher than other nations. When you look at the decision that was just made, I think predictive facts are predictive facts. That is only going to get higher with this decision. And it's concerning to the medical community, to the healthcare community, to mothers, to fathers, to family members. So, you know, we can't forget that point as well. And to the point about having a ripple effect, Ryan, you and I were talking about the the aspect of medical training in states where abortion is no longer legal and you have medical training, what does that do to create gaps in care and gaps in having the right training or adequate training so that in the case that there may be an issue of safety for the mother, where the decision is appropriate to provide an abortion service, will we really have providers in those states that are able to do so in a safe manner? I would bet that some of these states will reach into some of the sporting elements of abortion services that could reach as far as what kind of medical training actually exists in the curriculum as, as students, right, are becoming physicians. And so I think that piece is also a part of that ripple effect that we have barely even touched on. And I think it probably goes back to, we just don't know absolutely what's going to happen. And to your point about where the line is on the safety for mothers, part of what we're probably going to see is just how far will the legal side go in determining what is appropriate or not based on the fact that there's so much ambiguity 
at a state level with these laws and because much of the rulemaking has actually not come to fruition yet. I wonder how health plans are going to respond and react to this as well. Maybe health plans don't necessarily cover abortion as it stands right now, but we know in, in, in the world of employer-funded healthcare plans, they do. And you know, just in the last two business days, many, many large companies, Uber, Netflix, Disney, Microsoft, Apple, Meta, Yelp, all Citibank, these huge giants in the industry have made public intentions to offer travel expense reimbursement and to pay or, or subsidize women and family members who are traveling out of states with strict abortion laws, even though they have employees within the states that automatically or have these trigger laws. So it just adds to this confusion. I do think you're, you're right. And employer activism over the last two days has been pretty interesting to see, especially some of the names that you mentioned, right? Many of them are self-insured employers that use partnerships with health plans in a third-party administrative type of way. To that extent, though, we also have health plans that have offered or have provided abortion service coverage to a certain degree. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what, what happens with health plans and the role that they may play and how many self-insured employers actually step up into this crescendo of announcements that we've seen over the last two days to continue to support the rights of women for these types of services. It's definitely been interesting and perhaps heartening to see some of these large-scale self-insured employers really jump into the mix here. Seeing some of these players who maybe we didn't expect to weigh in from the traditional healthcare industry perspective is almost indicative of the uncertainty in general of where things are going and the need for different players to get in the mix to, to cope with some of this ambiguity. When I think about some of the core pieces that are potentially opened up from this decision, it almost feels like we've, you know, pulled a thread or opened Pandora's box with some really complex questions that span the entire healthcare industry, you know, even more so than just looking at the direct impact on reproductive health or women's health care, because we've really started to give the state potentially control over healthcare decisions, medical decisions. We've started to ask questions around what is the role of the state versus a national agency like the FDA when it comes to approving medical care. And these are all big questions that have implications beyond just women's health or reproductive health when you look at things like gender-affirming care or even where is the industry heading when it comes to pieces like cell and gene therapy. There are a lot of questions that this raises even outside of this one very specific sphere around reproductive and women's health. And now that we've sort of pulled on this one thread of row that so many precedents in our country were stitched to, so many conceptions of our laws or legal precedents around the right to privacy were, were almost tied to, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of what's going what's gonna to unravel as a result. The thing that we said is this was a landmark precedent that has now been overturned. And with that, it comes a host of unknown questions and unknown answers at the moment. We do know that there's a lot of emotional reaction to this and that 
the healthcare system as a whole is in the process of absorbing it because it is a change in policy. And as a result, I think we're gonna have a healthcare system that takes a little bit of time to absorb what that really means and patients absorbing what this really means to them when it comes to access to care. Mindy and Ryan, this is definitely a decision that will reverberate through the industry for for quite some time. I know I normally close us out with an allusion to the constant change in the healthcare industry. I think this is one of the largest changes the healthcare industry has seen in quite some time, probably since the Affordable Care Act was first implemented. And it is definitely one that we will be continuing to watch and continuing to talk about as we see hopefully some of this uncertainty be resolved and some resolution and improvement in access to care for women's health and reproductive health. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.